Well, good afternoon and welcome again to today's special event. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, just to share a little bit with you, the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint is an organization that we started to uh, help uh, help promote change when it comes to the use of things like restraint and seclusion in schools. Uh, we believe that we can and must be doing better and that there are better alternatives to things like restraint and seclusion. Uh, so we help in uh, raising awareness and encouraging legislative change. So again, we are here today with another uh, exciting and special guest. We have Dr. Lori uh, DeSatels, who is going to be joining us today for this live event. Uh, this event, as the others that we've been doing, is really intended to support parents, teachers, and others uh, during these challenging times. We want to introduce you to things that are going to be helpful not only uh, today, but even in the future as your uh, you know, kids might be going back to school or your students might be coming back to you. I do want to let you know that we're going to be having a great presentation. We will be taking questions at the end of the presentation today. And also, uh, we will be recording today's event. So not only is it going to be uh, broadcast live, uh, we'll also be um, having it available on Facebook, YouTube, and as an audio podcast following the presentation. So before we introduce our guest, I want to begin by introducing you to our co-host, Beth Tolley. Hey, Beth. Hi. Uh, so Beth is the Director of Educational Strategy for the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. She retired in 2018 from a leadership position in Virginia's lead agency on early intervention for infants and toddlers. Although she's retired, we're trying to put her to work even harder now than, than ever before. Uh, she has experience as a parent, a grandparent, and has worked with uh, children that have had behavioral challenges. And this has really fueled her passion to improve the lives of children and families through education, mutual support and advocacy, and she does amazing work with us at the Alliance. So welcome, Beth. Thank you, Guy. So it is my great pleasure to tell you a little bit about Dr. Lori Desatels. <laughs> um, I practiced that and still I butchered it, sorry. Uh, Lori is an assistant professor at Butler University College of Education, where she teaches graduate and undergraduate students in the applied educational um, I get this right, Applied Educational Neuroscience certification program they have there, which is really terrific, by the way. Um, she also has, for the last six years, gone back into the schools at different grade levels to co-teach. And what she's doing there is working directly with the, the teachers and the kids, teaching them um, strategies and practices that prepare the brain to learn, uh, that dampen down the stress responses, and that attuned to the developing brain states of children and youth. Lori's, <clears throat> excuse me, Lori is the author of several publications, and she's a writer for Edutopia. And she's currently in the process of birthing her fourth book, which I can't wait to get. It's called Connections Over Compliance, Rewiring Our Perceptions of Discipline. So Lori, take it away. Well, I guess Guy will come back, but I'm thrilled to have you here. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Beth. And thank you guys so much. I'm really excited to share this afternoon and um, and also to answer questions. So I apologize if I go quickly, an hour, hour and 15 minutes goes pretty, pretty fast. <clears throat> but um, thank you for the kind words and and also for all the work that you do in this area. Um, thank, thank you so much, Lori. We're really, really excited to have you here today. And I think you're 
um, you know, the things that you talk about and the things that you teach have so much importance, I would say today, even even more than ever. And we're really excited to have you. I'm going to go ahead and pull your presentation up for you and, and let you take it away. And uh, just remind you, if you need anything, let us know. But Beth and I are going to disappear as I now bring your presentation on screen. So uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Guy. And thank you, Beth. So I want to begin this presentation. Um, I don't know, I don't remember in my lifetime when we've had um, this global and this national adversity and some trauma that we have all experienced over the last few months and as recently as in the last couple of weeks with um, the racism and um, also this pandemic. We actually, I believe, have two viruses right now that um, are affecting all of us in very personal, um, in very uh, collective ways. And, um, and these will impact and are impacting our children and our youth as we move through this time. So um, with that being said, I love this quote and I wanna begin with it this afternoon. The child who is not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. And I think for me, what this is saying to all of us is that we all need to feel safe and to feel felt for well-being. And oftentimes the behaviors that we are seeing from our children and adolescents and from many of the adults around us are based or steeped in pain. And I want to address that today. So I am at Butler um, and I am back in the classroom. I'm going to be in a large diverse public school district in Indianapolis this upcoming year in Lawrence Township. And so with that, I will be back in the classroom. Everything I'm gonna talk with you about today is from the experience that I've had, um, not only as a teacher of children with a classification of emotionally disturbed or behavior disordered, um, but also as a school counselor and um, and also the past six years going back into the classroom, taking these practices and strategies and actually applying them, having great days and then having really, really difficult, hard, horrible moments. So um, I want to begin with this quote today, too. When a child hits a child, we call it aggression. When a child hits an adult, we call it hostility. When an adult hits an adult, we call it assault. When an adult hits a child, we call it punishment. And so really what I hope to share with you today is a perspective shift for us, the adults, who work with children who are oftentimes just overwhelmed by the pain that has attached to their bodies and brains. We're not excusing behaviors, but we have to understand what's beneath the signal of the behavior. So when we think about where we are in the United States right now, school corporal punishment is still legal in 19 states. We are still hitting kids. And over 160,000 children in these states are subject to corporal punishment in schools each year. So traumatized students suffer from a reluctance to admit fault 
And when it's pointed out to them, <clears throat> imagine that their entire selves are under assault as opposed to trusting that it is merely, merely one of their behavior, behaviors that is being criticized. So we're gonna talk about the developing brain today and how this affects behaviors and how experiences are the number one ingredient that build brains and nervous systems. And the experiences that we interface with throughout the developing years are how we begin to internalize and live life. I'm really excited about this framework. This afternoon, what I'm talking about is not a program. It is not scripted. Um, it's not asking teachers or parents to do anything more than what you're already doing. Um, it is really the plate for which we can place these practices and strategies upon that feel relevant and meaningful to us. And so um, when I think about what I'm going to be talking with you about today, and I say this often in my presentations, I have three children who are now young adults, 21, 25, and 28. And I can tell you, I would have been a very different mom had I known today what I had I known now what um, that this, this how this practice changes, how this neuroscience changes everything. It's extremely important in all of our relationships. So whether you're a parent, whether you're an educator, I really want you to think today about how you sit beside children, adolescents, your colleagues, your partners in all relationships. But I am going to be specifically talking about the context of discipline. So within this framework, which we call applied educational neuroscience, we've got four legs, four pillars in this work. And the very first one I want to address is my brain and body state. Again, as a mom, I would have done things differently had I known this. So as a teacher, what I'm learning is that behavior management, which I don't even like the word management, I'd rather be calling this behavior engagement, is about me, it's not about the student. It's all about my brain and body state. Am I able to be calm enough that I can share my calm with the students that I sit beside. And we'll talk more about that. Co-regulation is kind of becoming a buzzword. I think more regulation than co-regulation. And what, how I wanna share this today is that it really doesn't have to occur in negative situations. Co-regulation happens all the time. It's conversation at a dinner table. It's sharing a joke. It's exchanging a gentle eye gaze. It's listening to learn. It's using our posture and the way we gesture and our tone to share our feelings and experiences with another. But when we think about discipline, co-regulation is at the foundation of this new protocol if we are truly trauma responsive because many of our children and adolescents who are walking in rough, who are walking in dysregulated, don't have the experiences or the skills to co-regulate. The third leg of this work is touch points. And basically that's connection, it's attachment. And what we know today, and, and a science is informing us as educators and parents faster than I can 
practically create these practices and strategies. But we know that attachment is the carrier of all development. And it develops the nervous system and it develops brain architecture from the brain stem up to the prefrontal cortex. And I wanna be very clear today, the brain, when I talk about the brain, I do not mean to create a simplistic view of the brain. It is complex. I love what Dr. Perry says. I believe he says we're on maybe inch two of a three mile journey in what we know about the brain. But what we are learning about the brain right now can absolutely shift the way that we are disciplining kids when we understand how adversity and trauma and pain affect behaviors. The fourth leg of this, which I have a big smile on my face even sharing this because I'm finding new ways to share this, is teaching our kids the science beneath their behaviors. If you understand why you feel edgy, why you feel frustrated or angry, why your face is getting hot, why your hands are sweating, why you see red when you're angry, then you start to feel relieved and you also feel empowered. And it's not, there's, you know, there are so many fabulous programs that schools are implementing across the country right now. And, and they're good. We've got conscious discipline. We've got zones of regulation. We've got leader in me. We have second step. We have PBIS. I mean, we can go on and on. But what I want to emphasize today is that to be a trauma responsive school or district is not about the program you implement. It is about your discipline protocol. And part of this protocol is sitting beside our students and each other, our staff, our buildings, and sharing the science together with our kids. It's empowering and it's relieving. So I'm gonna to begin today with two conditions that the brain needs, it absolutely needs for social, emotional, and physiological and academic well-being. And so this is discipline on the front end. So even though I'm gonna be talking about brain development and meeting students in brain state, this is discipline, but we gotta shift the way we see discipline from being reactive to being preventative. So every person's brain needs to feel connected or to feel felt. And we also need to feel safe. I love what Dr. Steve Porges says. He says, safety is the intervention. Safety. When any of us feel safe and when we feel felt, which aligns with how the brain learns and with how the brain develops, we learn. So I wanna ask a few questions and give an overview of this new lens of relational brain aligned discipline today. First of all, it begins with the adult and it really rests with the adult's brain and body state. When we talk about co-regulation, it is part of what we call a medium backup system that most schools are missing. Here's what I mean by this. When we think about discipline, we think everything, you know, everybody's in the classroom, everybody's doing fine, everyone's taking care of their business, or if we're talking about discipline at home, directions are being followed, everyone's doing what they need to do at our house, we, we say taking care of your business, and then boom, there's an explosion, and 
there's chaos or there's rigidity. And in a classroom, you go from being in the classroom, everyone's working, getting along to boom, you go to the office and there's nothing in between. And I'm gonna place an emphasis today on medium backup systems. Why is that that we have this gap? I'm, I don't know the answer to why we have the gap, but if you look at your school or look at this past year and, and, and look at where you have been and where you are, you will see that we oftentimes do not have these medium systems that we need that begin to model and teach the behaviors that we want to see from our children. I wanna make a statement right now and I want you to think about this. You can just even close your eyes and really just feel what the statement and what the science is telling us. If a child is never exposed to kindness, they won't develop the circuits in the brain for kindness. If a child does not develop um, if, if they're not exposed to empathy, then they do not develop the circuits in the brain for empathy or for emotional regulation. We don't get angry at students for not having the reading skills that they need at the level that they need them. But it's the same thing for discipline. I think part of this shift is we've got to be looking at discipline in a, not only a preventative brain aligned way, but also in a content way, you know, where we've got to begin to teach and model the behaviors that we want to see. So um, right now, when we think about this, I'm going to go to a couple of questions. I'll come back and talk about resiliency teams in just a little bit. But I want you to think right now about your own um, teaching situation last year. Um, now, we were interrupted in March. Um, but just in general, if you are an administrator, a teacher, or even a parent, you know, think about the discipline patterns in your own home. So some of the questions that I ask when I present to districts and schools, how many students were suspended? What are the number of office referrals? How many kickouts did you have? What are those demographics? And how many of those children and adolescents are repeat offenders? The discipline technique that any of us implement and integrate into our practices that is working will extinguish the behaviors that we do not want. Most of us settle for compliance or obedience, and we are not looking for that sustainable behavioral shift that actually teaches a child a new behavior that produces a sense of safety and connection and purpose and autonomy. And it sounds complicated, but it's not because it happens under those two conditions that I introduced <clears throat> at the beginning, safety and connection. So when we think about discipline and looking at preventative discipline, I'm gonna show you a ladder in a little bit, but <clears throat> I want you to just kind of look at these bullets in this district, our discipline protocols meet students in brain development. If you are brain aligned and you are shifting the way you see how discipline is addressed, you don't meet students in behavior. You meet them in brain state. To do this well, we ask for all staff to check in with their own brain states 
and making our own brain and body states a priority. We ask and require a deep understanding of the brain research as it relates to trauma and adversity and resiliency. It's there. And now it's time to really apply it and to know that when you know better, you do better. We address discipline through engagement, which occurs on the front end. It happens naturally through our procedures, our routines, our classroom rituals, our transitions, and, and it happens with everything that we're doing already. The one shift that happens is inside our intentionality. So I'm gonna begin with some brain-aligned preventative discipline strategies and practices that can be built in to what you're already doing as a caregiver, as a guardian, as an educator, as an administrator. And I love this quote um, because what Dr. Dan Siegel shares is that just naming it can tame it. And when you can share it with another, you can bear it because of the other. So I love this. I'm afraid, said Rabbit. What are you afraid of, asked Bear? I don't know, replied Rabbit. I just am. Then I will sit with you until you're not afraid anymore, said Bear. We will face it together. Being with me, and that does not necessarily mean words are spoken, is healing me. So the difference today, and here's what we're looking at. The new lens of brain-aligned preventative relational discipline is co-regulation. It's at the foundation. It's when I take my calm awareness, I'm paying attention to my brain and body state, and I'm sharing that with the student who needs that draining off of negative emotion. On coercive regulation, traditionally, there has been a focus on student behavior, no awareness on mine. But we know better now because we know how contagious emotions are. And we know that when an adult is feeling emotional dysregulation, that has direct implication to amp up and to unintentionally re-traumatize kids who are coming in with disruptive, destructive, um, oppositional, defiant, what looks like dis disrespectful or and I don't want to leave this out this afternoon, kids who internalize pain, who are completely shut down. And we'll talk about that too. So I want just to begin with a little bit of brain development as we look at the impact of accumulating adversities. Adversity happens, <clears throat> excuse me, on, an, on a continuum. And so I don't like to use trauma. I like to use the word adversity because it's not necessarily huge traumas that can create pain, but it, they can be accumulating adversities. What we now understand, and if I had shared this, pod, this, this presentation with Guy and Beth even two years ago, I wouldn't have emphasized the body overwhelm as much as I am today. We now understand that trauma and adversity land in the body as much, if not more than the brain, um, it is a body overwhelm, which we call embodied implicit memory. And those memories are subconscious, they're unconscious. And we know that during those early days of life, those first 1,000 days of life, those times when we don't have conscious memory, 
the experiences that happen to us in those first 1,000 days really set the table and they map out without connection, without a healthy, what Harvard calls a serve and return without another, they start to map out a very compromised, very stagnated development. So implicit memories are body memories and we need to meet children where they are in that brain state. And we'll be talking about this as we go through this. So what does that look like in a classroom? We, I'm just gonna give you one example. How do you meet kids? What does discipline look like on the front end? How does it, how, what do you mean, Lori? How is it brain aligned? How is it relational? And, and what, what are you talking about? It happens as, you, as the kids walk in in the morning. It happens in morning meeting. It happens how you greet a child. And it happens with questions that intimately affect what a child has been experiencing or an adolescent. So we use these types of questions um, this past last couple of months before school was out here in Indiana. And I've added racism as an ace because how has this pandemic affected you and your family? Our kids were dying to tell us they were coming into virtual learning or into Google Classroom and they were really strung tight. I mean, they they came in and their worlds have been turned upside down. And what we know is that when you can use art or journaling, when you can draw how you are experiencing something and give it a shape and give it a size and give it a color, you're calming the nervous system. When you can actually journal and talk or talk with someone or write out your feelings and the sensations and your thoughts, that calms the nervous system. Linda Chapman has wonderful research about how the use of art can be very um, healing and repairing to the brain and the body. So just think about this for a minute. If somebody asked you to draw the pandemic and how it has affected you, or draw the last two weeks of how racism has been up close and personal in all of our lives, what color would that be? What shape would it be? What size would it be? What would the lines look like? How would it taste? How would it smell to you? And, and so when you can draw that, it actually is one of the best ways to get the brain ready to pay attention, to have stronger working memory, and to be creative and curious and to get in that state where we can use our executive functions. So these are just some examples of some of the questions that we've been opening up a morning meeting or opening up bell work um, with our students, K through 12. You can modify these for any age group. Here's another strategy that I hope as we look at this new lens for discipline becomes a part of every classroom. And that is a focus on sensations. Our brain develops from the back to the front, as I've said, and the language of the brainstem is sensation. What do I mean by that? Our brainstem develops most often in utero. And so we have, this is the seat of all of our autonomic functions. This is where breathing and respiration, digestion, and also our sensory worlds come in to the brainstem area. We've got an area there that filters out what we can, what we're taking in, 
um, what we what we don't take in. We have what um, I love this term. It's the launching pad for anxiety. It's called the locus ceruleus, and that spritzes norepinephrine throughout the brain, projects to keep us alert to protect us. But the brainstem is the grand central station of how the world affects us from the outside in and from the inside out. So it has connections between the brain and the body. It's like this bi-directional highway. So we use a sensation word wall. And this sensation word wall has words like prickly, numb, tense, tight. It has fuzzy, blurry. All of these our kids can truly relate to because oftentimes when we just talk about social and emotional learning and the importance of feelings, many of our children and adolescents don't have a strong feeling vocabulary. But if you talk about sensation, what does edgy look like? What does it feel like to, if you say numb, what does numb look like? What color would numb be? What shape would numb be? What size would it be? Again, as a mom, this would be a great routine to do before bed at night or when you get up in the morning or sharing during a mealtime. So sensations are healing and repairing when we can name them and, and take them out of the brain and body and put them in a self container that is outside of us. That is discipline on the front end. This is tier one. If you think of RTI discipline triangle, and this is where, again, we've got to make the shift. This happens long before there is a behavioral issue. And, and this happens, These this is good for all students. We're not talking about those kids or these kids. So this is, these are some of the statements that we've heard over this early spring, late spring and early summer. Um, and our kids have been worried. You know, teachers are hearing this and parents are hearing this. And the reason I share some of these examples with you is because I love what Dr. Mona Delahook says, and she was just speaking on this um, on this live cast just a few weeks ago. Behaviors are signals, and they are communicating what is beneath the words. And so one of the things that I kept hearing from parents and from students is, you know, am I going to get sick from this pandemic? What if you get sick? Who's going to take care of us? What happens is, when those questions begin to cycle, our behaviors amp up. Um, and so it, this is why co-regulation is so important as a parent and as a child. So what do you do when you hear this from a child is you validate. And we'll talk about that too. So this, this makes me smile too. We heard a lot from our fifth graders um, because again, I was with fifth grade when I left them in March. Um, and so the parents were hearing, um, you know, you're you're overprotective. I'm sick of this house. I'm sick of you. Um, I'm going to go out anyway. And so these types of reflexive reactive responses are really signaling and what they're saying, what that child or that adolescent needs us to understand is that I need some control and power. I need some predictability. Um, this is way out of your league. I mean, I, this is you know, there's over, there's just this overwhelming feeling. So um, those are just some examples and um, that we're hearing right now. So I'm giving you what you hear from your child or what you heard from your student and then what that student needs you to know. So I think these are really important as we look 
look beneath. All right, so as we talk about discipline on the front end, and as we look about, as we think about what we can do, Dr. Steve Porges has shared research with us through um, his work with the polyvagal theory. And this is really fascinating for us as parents and for us as educators. And it's very simple and, you know, simple and yet complex. Children in stress, any child, or and this goes, this is about us to adults in pain or adults in stress. We don't hear redirection. We don't hear instructions. We don't hear consequences when we are in a state of fight, flight, or shutdown. Because we have a very small middle ear muscle that in states of dysregulation and stress expands. And the reason that little muscle expands is to make sure that we hear everything in the environment that helps us stay safe. And this is huge for us. When we are calm and regulated, that muscle constricts, that little teeny less than one millimeter muscle constricts, and we are able to focus and pay attention on something that is being said to us. We're able to pay attention. We are able to respond in a calm way and to listen to learn. But oftentimes what happens is when kids escalate, we escalate with them and we are talking, talking, talking at them and they cannot neurobiologically take it. And then what happens is we see more activation and an elevation of the stress response systems in their body. And then we see destruction, violence, aggression, and we've reached the point of no return. So I just cannot emphasize this enough. Attending is not a choice, it's a response. And this is steeped in research from Dr. Steve Porges. I wanna share also about the belly brain. And I want us as parents and educators to think about the power again of safety and connection in preventative brain aligned discipline. The research is telling us it's not only what you eat, but it's also the associations that, that infants make during feeding time with food, but also the ritual or lack thereof of food. Human beings are contagious. We pick up on each other's emotions. If a mother or caregiver or guardian or teacher is stressed, and, and I'm, I'm gonna take teacher out of that because I wanna go back earlier in development. So if a caregiver is stressed and you've grown up associating meal times with um, stress, then there is food and relational nurturance built into our brain and body systems that become implicit embodied memories. So I was thinking about this because what can we do as we re-enter school, whether it's virtual, hybrid, or back to face-to-face, -face, where we can create rituals with snack time? We can create rituals with a lunch. Maybe we share it with one-on-one -on -one with a student. Maybe we're having lunches. I know an elementary school in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where some of the behaviors of the kids have been so rough because of the adverse childhood experiences and the trauma they are carrying in. They've created breakfast clubs first thing in the morning. So they are 
creating a ritual um, and an experience where relationship and touch points are connected to um, mealtime. And even with it's just, you know, even sharing a snack or a glass of water, I think that this is really important for us to think about as brain aligned preventative discipline. So I also want to think about nonverbal communication. Um, we our communication, our words account for 7% and our facial expression, our posturing and gesturing and our tone of voice are the other 93%. So talking at students through academic content and consequences, um, they're not hearing, no one hears words when we are rough, nobody does. Um, and it, that's why it is so important for us to understand the science behind this now. Um, we do not hear words and we don't process words, but we certainly are watching from the eyes up, we are listening to tone, we are looking for safety in gestures and posture. So this COVID and these recent weeks of racism that has been present for hundreds of years, if not longer, but is right now upon us, has produced three conditions that the brain cannot take. And those conditions are oftentimes creating these severe behavioral challenges that are happening over and over and over again that become chronic behavioral challenges in your classrooms and schools and districts. And I want to talk about those just for a second because school is the place, it's the de facto, where we can provide the antithesis of these three conditions. The first condition that the brain cannot take is chronic unpredictability. What can we do? In, the, the, in our homes and in our schools to lessen this feeling of chronic unpredictability. We can amp up our procedures and our routines. We can create rituals like lunchtime ritual or a snack ritual. We can invite morning meeting to be a touch point. And I'm gonna share some more strategies. We can invite um, safety in ways um, where we create class guidelines and, and we, we, we really look at new roles and responsibilities in our classrooms, giving children a voice. Isolation, the brain, it's so hard on the brain. And so many people have felt and have been isolated over the last four months. Um, very difficult for the developing brain, for children. I believe right now, 80% of our um, DCS calls are um, neglect. And um, neglect is very damaging to the developing brain. Emotional and physical restraint is damaging to brain architecture. When you are emotion, when you feel like you are emotionally restrained, you can't say what you need to say. You feel like you don't, your voice doesn't matter. You can't explain, you can't share the pain. Or when you are physically held down, when you are physically um, restricted in any way, it goes against how the brain survives. And movement and breathing are critical for calming the nervous system. So I know that there we, we could we could have again, I told Guy this an eight-hour discussion just on this last condition, 
but um, I'm going to be talking about this a little bit later. But if a child has gone through experiences where they have been physically abused or sexually abused, or they have felt um, physical restraint in a very, very um, unhealthy way, they... <laughs> We don't mean to, but what happens is we will strive for any type of physical or emotional freedom from that. Um, and sometimes we will see kids run out of the building, run out of classrooms, um, try to break free of a hold. And I know oftentimes those holds are to keep them safe, but I think we've got to begin to have a focus on how we got there in the first place. Because oftentimes the kids that are struggling the most have had physically restraining traumatic experiences. So we can talk more about that later. Um, three reasons we have a brain and in the order of importance, survival trumps everything and then emotion. So when we feel safe and when we feel felt, then we can learn. So as we look at this new lens for discipline and we think about discipline on the one um, on the front end, I just I, I want you to think we created this diagram looking at how we can use applied educational neuroscience to be very proactive and to be relational. And again, it's good for all students. This is a tier one practice. So I want you to think about what your procedures look like what your routines and your transitions look like, what your morning and afternoon rituals look like. How are you using um, calming um, regulatory practices? Not words, but the ways that we know calm those lower regions of the brain when we are seeing kids rough and dysregulated. And then tier two is just being a little more intentional about some of our kids needing more intense practices or more frequent practices, and then we amp up again to tier three. But again, we're looking at this on the front end um, and, and how we can create that brain and body state that is um, in that calm regulated state before we have a behavioral challenge. So let's talk about how we can do that. This is what we're calling a brain check-in or brain feedback sheet. It is student driven. I am going to be very honest this afternoon. Point and contingency systems can derail kids about as much as anything else. And the kids who are getting the points are always the same students that are getting the points in a contingency system. When we talk about behavior, we are unintentionally evaluating and assessing and judging and our kids pick up on that. And so I, last year, with the wonderful help of Abbott Elementary in Fort Wayne and Jamie and Frank, Frank Klein is the principal and Jamie is the instructional coach, we sat down together and we created this brain um, reflection check-in sheet. We are just, we really understand that when kids know what, what state they're in and where they're functioning and what's happening and how that affects their behavior and their feelings, I said behavior, I shouldn't even said that, how it affects how they feel and sense, then we see them empowered. 
And <clears throat> this is this is a fabulous, you could change this any way you wanted. You could do check-ins once a day, twice a day, three times a day. This is for older kids, younger kids. We have one for middle and high school. You could do it at the beginning of a class period, the end. I'm telling you as a mom, I would have used this. I would have said, you know what? Everybody just check in. You know how, you know, just do when you just do this in the morning, afternoon, the evening, it becomes a touch point. It becomes a way for us to really gather perceptual data and to really have that discussion. Sweetie, you, you know, you seemed like you've been in that fight flight response. You've been in the red, you've downshifted. Um, what's going on? You know, that's been two afternoons in a row. So it's not judging. It's not talking about behavior, but it's talking about the prefrontal cortex. It's talking about the limbic system, which I'm going to talk about in a minute in a very natural way. And it's talking about the brainstem and kids learn what these are. And, and so this is a great way to begin to think about um, touch points, co-regulation, teaching kids about their neuroanatomy. And the most important thing is when we implemented this in fifth grade last year, Emily Wilkerson was my co-teacher in my fifth grade class. I loved her idea. She didn't even give this to the kids at first. She had this up laminated 24 by 36 inch poster. And she had she she literally did her own brain and body state every day for two full weeks. And during morning meeting, she would say, OK, you guys, you know, I kind of came in rough today or I had a great morning before I got to school or in the middle of the day. You know what? We've had a lot of arguing in here today and I'm just I'm going to have to circle. I'm in my limbic system. I'm in my amygdala. And so she modeled this for them. And then after they saw what this looks like with her, they were so excited to have their own. So you could do this privately on even a Google Doc sheet. We know that emotions are contagious. We know that kids in stress create in adults their feelings. And if not trained, the adults will mirror their behavior. This is what happens to all of us. I've been there a million times as a mom. And I've been there a million times as a teacher. I will mirror the behaviors that I am seeing in seeing from the children I sit beside and the adolescents I sit beside. So I always I, I want to share a slide that means um, probably this means the most to me in this time because I'm we're talking about practices and strategies that calm us. But here is a shift we can make as adults. And I want you to think about this. I'm going to read this to you. In this time of unpredictability and feelings of fear in life and in education, we are going to need to prepare as parents and educators for escalating and dysregulating behaviors we may not have seen before or as intense and as frequent as they are going to be in this upcoming year. Listen to this next part. A new adult lens for rewiring our perceptions of discipline may require us to replace the word consequences with experiences. What is the experience this child needs to learn a better way? What experiences does my 15-year-old need to feel more in control and less manipulative? What experiences does my son need to help him take responsibilities for his choices? By shifting this one word, it begins to shift our perspective in our perception, and that too has contagion. I would encourage you 
to write down consequences at the top of a piece of paper and list all the words, boom, boom, boom. What do you think of when you think of the word consequence? And then I would write the word experiences at the top of a piece of paper. And then what I would do is just brainstorm every word that you can think of that aligns or is associated with experiences and look at the difference. This is an adult challenge and behavior management or behavior engagement and discipline begins with me. What is the one tool you have inside of you that can calm a child or an adult that you're working with or escalate that child or adult? And that tool is your tone of voice. It is part of the day. It's part of our procedures. It's a part of us. And sometimes those tools that are closest to us are the hardest for us to see. We've been thinking, as I've worked with school districts through virtual learning over the last several months, what would be a fun way for educators to listen to your own tone? Um, I don't have the answer to that, but I would love there to be discussion about how can we assess our own tone. I know in my house, when I think my tone is calm, my girls will say, Sarah and Reagan will say to me, mom, you've got your, that voice. You've got that voice. You're going high. And, and so it's, it's so true, but that's the one tool that we all have that we can escalate or we can regulate. This is from Dr. Bruce Perry. It is his slide from um, the uh, neurosequential network. And um, I love this slide because it really simply shows what we have been sharing and teaching um, in this new lens for relational discipline. And that is a regulated calm adult can regulate a dysregulated anxious child, but a dysregulated adult can never calm or regulate a dysregulated child. So this is calling us to co-regulate. This is emotional, relational contagion. And his chart, Dr. Perry's chart, shows in where the red arrow is that when we have downshifted to the limbic system and we are full on fight, flight, or shut down, our mental state goes into alarm, often moving to fear and terror, which for kids, anger is the bodyguard of fear. Our thinking becomes emotional. So there's an emotional override of cognition. And our sense of time is immediate and urgent. That is why, and I, and I cannot emphasize this enough, that is why when we've reached the limbic areas of the brain, consequences, logic, rewards, and stickers do not work. And we get, we resist change as the adults. You know, the longer we've been using a system, we hold on to it tighter sometimes because it's scary to change. But I think, and this is just from my own personal experiences as a mom and as an educator, when my students and my own children were dysregulated and rough, my biggest fear was losing control. And I think that is what many of us, if we peel the layers back, I think we're afraid of losing control. So we unintentionally jump in to the emotional midbrain state with our students. So what can we do? 
taking deep breaths, humming, literally humming, singing is calming to the nervous system. I bring those up um, because I love these illustrations that my daughter Reagan created. Um, we can see at the top the dysregulation of the adult and its contagion on the child. And then we can see the adult brain and body state taking the lead and breathing deeply to calm them himself. And then we see the contagion. Um, and again, I know it's not this simple, and yet it is. So this is the core of the new lens for discipline. We have a brain that has superpowers. And one of those superpowers is neuroplasticity. It is our brain and body's miraculous way of changing structurally and functionally with every experience encountered. And we know that the brain that we walk into a situation with or that we encounter is changed every second from those encounters, from those relationships, from those experiences. So I am going to pay attention to my rituals this school year, whether I'm online or in the classroom or both. I'm going to rethink about snack time, as I've mentioned. I'm going to think about how I greet students. I'm going to think about how I can use my calm brain and body to create safety and connection um, first thing in the morning and how I end my class period or how I end the day. Very briefly, um, we know that there are two huge times of brain development. And the greatest time, which I've already mentioned, is in the first 1,000 days of life and experiences stick to the brain like Velcro. This brain is wiring up at the most recent research last week that I just listened to was about a million synapses per second. I don't know if anyone has the exact number, but we know it's huge. And so then starting at around third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, because development is not linear, it's chaotic. And so that's why I went back into fifth grade six years ago. That brain starts to prepare for young adulthood. So it goes through the second greatest time of brain development. And our middle school and upper elementary teachers were not prepared to understand how this second greatest, greatest time of development affects behavior. Um, we tend to let go of kids in middle school. We tend to say, come on, you guys, let's go. You got a locker to open. You got six teachers to report to. You knew last year that your name needed to be on that paper. You knew that there was no excuse not to turn in your homework. This is middle school. And also what happens is children begin to look more like adults. But here are two pieces of research that we have to pay attention to when it comes to discipline in these years. And that is, when a child is in a fight, flight, or shutdown response, oftentimes that emotional age is about half of the chronolo chronological age. So you might be dealing with a 13-year-old or 14-year-old, but you'll see the behaviors of a six, seven, eight-year-old. The second thing that happens is because of the fragility of this development and these connections are being pruned away, as other connections are being strengthened to prepare for specialization and young adulthood, we see kids with a lot of vacancy in the brain and they need our direction. They need co-regulation. We tend to let go of them and what they need is they need that caregiver to be regulating beside them. I think 
as I worked at St. Mary's Early Childhood Center in the last couple of years with three and four year olds, and then I've done my, in my classrooms co-teaching, not this year, but last year I was with sixth, seventh and eighth graders, specifically our eighth grade team. I saw behaviors that resembled those of three and four year olds. And I think there is a developmentally, and you know, we laugh at this, but if you think of the two characters in Star Wars, Pre our prefrontal cortex, which doesn't develop until we're almost 30, is like Spock, who reasons, who thinks calmly, who thinks through um, his emotions. But then you've got Captain Kirk, who is like those two oval-shaped structures that live in the limbic system, the amygdala. And this is developed <clears throat> in the first year of life. I mean, I've heard different stages, but it's early development. So we have kids in middle school, upper elementary into high school that have a fully developed emotional system with a very underdeveloped rational system. Now, these two aren't separate. They work together. The cortex and the limbic structures all work together. Um, but we do know that the communication between the two is very different. And when the brain is going through adolescence, its job is to question authority and to find purpose and autonomy and mastery through the lens of peers. Um, there's an adolescent motto, you can say or do anything to me, but don't call me out in front of my peers. And that's one of the worst, that's how we can escalate kids like that. Um, and because of the necessary lens through which identity and mind, body, self is developing in these years. And so we're giving our students this chart. You can have a wall size of this. Um, this is for the older kids. Um, we are sharing with them when you're functioning in your social engagement system in the green area, this is the, um, this is the polyvagal graph, then you are calm. Your cortex is getting a good, strong, oxygenated glucose blood flow, and you're able to be um, happy, interested, creative, all of those things. When you start to amp up, you get a text that annoys you, you get worried, you get anxious, you had something happen on the bus, something happened in the hallway, someone looked at you in the hall, you walk into class and you've already amped up to irritation and anger. And what does that do? That begins to shut down this cortex so that it's not, it's not able to process what the schoolwork is about. I mean, you're, you've got an algebra test. You've got to write a persuasive paragraph. You have to talk about Shakespeare. Not going to happen when you are in fight flight um, and moving up into fear, anger, panic, and rage. So we are having kids check in, and they actually can do this privately. You can do this. Um, you can do this. You know, as a class, um, lots of different ways. Up in the blue are kids who are internalizing their pain. And these are students that are really struggling with a shutdown. We call this dissociation to an extreme because dissociation isn't a bad thing. Um, but <clears throat> when your heart rate and blood pressure and respiration lower to the point where you're conserving energy, what does this look like? These are kids who have high absenteeism in our schools. I mean, I see that they disappear. You know, they're not acting out their anger. They're not really... You know, you don't see them as kickouts, um, but they're not showing up. Their hoods are over their heads, their heads are down, and they've checked out. And this worries me. Um, 
the the latest research um the age group from 10 to 14 in our country that age group um, the suicide rate rate has tripled in the last seven to ten years um, i shared this research three years ago and it had doubled and now that has moved up to the triple um tripling so this is um informative but it's also a strategy we have a simplified one that we're using for younger students um, again, when you talk about the brain state, this is preventative brain aligned discipline on the front end. This is a procedure. This is how we check in and this is how we lead during the day. And, and we um, we even for our really younger kids, we use characters um, that align with each of the brain states like Tigger might be fight flight, Eeyore might be brainstem or characters from Frozen, um, Harry Potter, um, you know, uh, superheroes but this is a preventative brain aligned tier one practice that's discipline on the front end this um was taken years ago it went viral and um precious is my colleague and friend she is at um she was in ips i don't know if it was the time of this practice but um, this little guy um, when i travel around the country and throughout the state of indiana right now some of the roughest kids that I am seeing and that are being shared with me are kindergarten and first grade levels. And so um, Precious was called to down to a classroom as a security resource officer. And she had um, the opportunity um, to co-regulate with the student. Um, he was screaming, he was crying. This is his mother in to the left. Um, and Precious was able to meet him where he was in brain development. She didn't talk. She didn't use words. Um, she started taking deep breaths while she was laying on the floor. She didn't even use eye contact at first. And she just allowed him to watch and to absorb her calm. So many of you may have seen this, but I wanted to share this with you. So in our new book that will be out um, late fall, early winter, um, we are using a brain aligned classroom discipline um, and leadership ladder. And so in the new book, and I certainly can't talk about it in this short amount of time, but what I do want to emphasize is at the very bottom, we go from the bottom to the top. So, and I know I'm, I'm a, I apologize, this font is hard to see, but classroom structures and routines, procedures, transitions, the rituals you set up, teaching kids about their neuroanatomy and creating a biosocial environment that feels safe and connected is 75% there. And, and, and so here is going to be the toughest part for anybody who's watching today or who has started to really delve in to this new perception of discipline. The resistance is going to come not from students, the resistance when you begin a new discipline um, shift that is steeped in prevention is going to come from your colleagues because if you do not understand the science and you do not understand co-regulation, then co-regulation is going to look like you're rewarding negative behavior. And this is what we are addressing in the book and what I'm presenting about in as we move into professional developments 
Um, and you can see in here that as you move from the bottom of the ladder to the top, um, we look at the power of touch points and warm eye contact, how we greet students. And, um, and I'm gonna go through just a couple of specific strategies with you as we move up that ladder. So we've all, I think, have heard this statement, discipline is not something we do to anyone, it is something we want to create within them. This is another way to check in. We did this with our fifth graders. Right off the bat, as you begin the school day, we, you can't see it, we just have the line, it's a light, purple line and the kids made brains and they can actually place their brain on the line if they're feeling just you know kind of so-so below the line if they're feeling some negativity and above the line if they've come in in their cortex so it's just another choice for you to focus on brain state um, we all have a negative brain bias um, that is because we our first priority is to survive so we in a state of fight flight and survival brain state pay attention to everything that feels unsafe unfamiliar or threatening so we make sure and share that with our students that it is absolutely fine to go below the line many of us do several times a day but your brain is constantly and fluidly moving you never are really stuck hopefully not stuck in one specific brain state um, for a long period of time. So some of the, let's talk about what the, so what are these discipline strategies look like preventatively at home and at school? This is bell work we do. And this is, this could be, I put family because we were doing this with family and educators, but we start off with the brain scavenger hunt. We start off the day moving, we start off the day breathing, we start off the day associating um, objects, we draw them if we don't have them and the kids find they've got five minutes to find something um, that they use or that they know of in their house that resembles neuroplasticity or they look around the classroom for something that resembles neuroplasticity. What's something that calms you? And this is really important. This regulation tool will soon be developed into a routine of regulations that students can use um, when they start to feel their hands get hot or seeing red or they can't get a deep breath or they feel like they're gonna hit punch or run out of the room. We help kids sense how they're feeling so they, they can use these regulation tools. So we also help them find something that stresses you. Um, they identify that, um, something that, you know, is that evokes a memory and then something that makes me feel smarter or helps me to focus. Could be a crossword puzzle, could be a book you're reading. Um, it could be playing basketball, um, exercises. So it helps us to focus and pay attention. So again, naming it and sharing it is healing and repairing. Um, this is a touch point. And for this is, again, discipline on the front end. This is called dual journaling, dual storytelling. Um, it really um, is a back and forth between the teacher and the student. Um, I, if you have a kid who's always coming in rough, we offer this up and this is just something that you can do with that student. Um, you might do um, a pen pal journaling back and forth for a couple of weeks. Um, you might create a story together with lines and shapes. And again, this um, on my YouTube channel and on my website, um, I go into more details, but I want to emphasize in this short amount of time, this is a touch point that we work for people we like, relationships matter. So this is, these are, 
preventative brain aligned bell work morning meeting or rituals at the end of the day that um, create connection and trust. This one, um, Beth has heard me speak to this at another um, presentation I gave. It's who is your wise self? When we get angry, we not only focus right here and right now, but we can't really, we don't really take time to reflect. And in the heat of the moment, you, none of us do. But this was fun. We did this with fifth graders and they worked on this in the mornings as a choice when they came in and they shared a creation. They drew their wise self. Very interesting. Some of them picked a family member and they drew their family member. Some people picked animals. Some people made imaginary figures. They gave it a shape and a color. Um, and then we asked the kids, what could your wise self say to comfort you when you're upset? What words soothe you? What words help you to feel calm, help you to feel better? And then um, they wrote those. They designed them. Um, they, it was kind of like a mural. They worked on this for a couple of weeks. Um, and then we asked, how can you connect with your wise self? What would be some ways you could connect with your wise self when you start to feel your face get hot? When you start to feel like you cannot get that deep breath, when you start to feel so angry that things can go black. So this was, um, yeah, we had a great time with this. This was really helpful for a fifth grade student that we had um, who was constantly shut down and um, struggling emotionally. Um, Jada was her name. I will always remember the connection between the two. Breathing and movement calm us like no other regulatory practice. In Indiana, if you say focused, I'm sorry, if you say meditation, people still get just unsettled with that. We have been teaching our students how to use their breath and we start small, three seconds, and then we build up to maybe three minutes. It becomes a procedure. It becomes a part of our routine. We use it in transition times. The kids start leading focused attention practices. We always use our breath, but you can also use a sound. You can use a taste. You can use um, a visualization. And so these are brand new focused attention practices. And I wanna share, we give the kids the science. We teach the science behind these. If I'm a principal of a building, I'm gonna begin every staff meeting with my staff when every single one of these strategies are just as much for teachers and educators as they are for students. So a focused attention practice calms our nervous system. It also helps us to focus on a stimulus so that when we are focusing on the taste of an Altoid mint, when we are focusing on the taste of a peppermint, and when we are taking a deep breath in, for three breaths and extending our out breath a couple of seconds longer and feeling that cool air go into our nose and out through our nose or mouth, that's a sensation. Um, we have really fun ways. I don't have time to go through these today, but um, I will be happy if anyone's interested. Um, there are several articles in Edutopia that talk about focused attention practices that are calming and regulating. Brain intervals wake up the brain. Routine lulls us to sleep. And so I don't call these brain breaks, they're the same, but we've not used brain breaks 
intentionally and they've been they've been um, just misused. We we share with the students what happens in their brains when we do a brain interval, like an OK and a peace sign, and you move back and forth as fast as you can, keeping all other fingers down. I can do this very well, not because I'm gifted at it, but because I do it all the time. Um, patterned, repetitive experiences change behaviors. It's a process. It happens over time. Patterned, repetitive experiences change habits and they change thoughts and feelings and belief systems. But it doesn't happen overnight, it takes time. We know that chronic behavioral issues are regulation issues, which are physiological issues. So in the new book um, and in our um, educator preparation trainings, we have created a 30-page sensory connection and cortical strategies that become a part of your bell work, your morning meeting, how you end the day intentionally. So the sensory is based upon breath and movement and rhythm and pressure and heat or a cool breeze or music. Think of the ways that calm you when you're stressed. Many of us need a hot shower. Many of us wrap up in a blanket. Many of us need to be by ourselves. Many of us exercise or we eat something crunchy or we listen to music. Some of us go to sleep to get calm. I mean, there are some of us put a weighted blanket on. Some of us go out and do heavy lifting. Um, so we've taken these practices and strategies and we've created these for our kids and for us adults to it's, it's like you hold your plate of educational neuroscience and you go through a buffet line and you pick which one of these would feel comforting and soothing to you. So this is because we know that the calm connections, the calming of the nervous system and the brain happen through regulation, not through words. Nobody in the history of being told to calm down has ever calmed down. So the pink are touch points. And then here's another touch point. And I know I'm getting close. Um, so I'm just going to spend a couple more minutes. So this is really a great one for parents, for administrators, and for teachers. This touch point says, I want to take your order. What do you need? So on the left is a menu that administrators can give to their teachers. Um, we're all going to struggle coming back. Many of us have been through some chronic, chronic adversity over the last four and five and six months. So we will need to pay attention to our staff, the adult emotional and physiological needs. And then the one over here is for teachers to give to students. Now, these are just examples. You can make your own, but we give everybody a menu. You can take one student a day to do this. You could take a couple of students a day. And then once they look at the menu, then we say, I want to take your order. And so we literally, you can get these guest checks at Walmart, you can order them online, or you can just make your own. But this is a touch point and it's a <clears throat> it's a wonderful way to build relationships and connection in a very organic way. Some regulatory practices that we are sharing that are brain aligned, preventative, discipline on the front end is having a class or a staff Dropbox where we have post-its, 
<clears throat> and pens and pencils. You drop in your worries, your thoughts, your um, your anger, your celebrations. Um, we're having students do this on buses. We're doing we're giving this training for bus drivers and <clears throat> for transportation staff too. Um, it, these practices are for all of us. It's good to be able to have a show and tell student and staff time um, sharing something that's happened to you this week or something that's happened to you um, over, during the day. And <clears throat> you're able, again, to name it, you can tame it. And then we are uh, having students create preventatively a routine of three regulation um, strategies that they can begin to use and note when um, they are feeling rough. And um, so we are creating amygdala first aid stations and amygdala areas in schools across the country. We're not calling them calm corners or sensory rooms because I feel it's very important to use the name of the science um, and it feels respectful. Th these were created in the homes of our um, families during the early COVID-19 time, some schools sent me these pictures from Southern Indiana. And amygdala area doesn't have to be a big fancy area, it could be a bucket um, that has, you know, um, just things that are calming, artwork and Play-Doh, um, cotton balls with a little lavender, um, anything that is comforting and soft to you. We provide hand lotion, that could be in an amygdala first aid, giving yourself a hand massage. And during the COVID time, and um, the kids would do a 90 second hand massage with um, soap and water. And so in place of, and then did the lotion afterwards. So these are animal regulation cards we use. You can hear me saying regulation, regulation. This is where we can lessen these discipline issues when we meet students in brain and body state. So they learn a fun fact about animals and then they're moving and they're using breath. And each one of these cards has regulation activities that we use on the front end. One of the other touch points that we are providing for staff and for students, and if I'm a principal, I'm going <clears> to <throat> do this with my staff. Who's going to be your giver this week? Who's going to be the storyteller in your building or in your classroom? Who's going to be the noticer? Who's going to be the kindness keeper, the collaborator, the architect, the artist? Who's your graduate assistant? Who sits beside you and plans and creates um, content with you? Let, I mean, the kids would love to do that. Who's your video, your YouTube ambassador? Who's your neuroscientist as everybody learns this together? These are touch points. This helps build connection. So I'm going to end. Um, this presentation sharing um, this very final strategy that is a touch point. This is our oldest son, Andrew. And when um, he was going through upper elementary, I'm sorry, upper middle school to early high school, he was going through a very, very difficult time. And we know that when one of our children is struggling, the whole family feels it. And during that time, we not only saw pain-based behavior from Andrew, but we saw defiance, we saw aggression, we saw him um, very, very disrespectful all the time, lying to us, um, skipping school, I mean, it, it, everything, everything. And so in that moment, 
it was hard for us as his family to find what was going right and well. We had been through counseling. We had, I had grounded him. Um, I mean, I was just trying everything, anything and everything. And then I get an email from his freshman Spanish teacher, uh, Brandon Pickett. And it was a Monday afternoon before I was going into my um, undergraduate class. And then this email, Dr. Mr. Pickett wrote, Dear Dr. Desitel, I want you to know that Andrew had a smile on his face today. He was walking around and helping some of the other students and he finished his project. And then he wrote at the very end of that email, please let me know how I may serve you. And I want to end today with this because this teacher shared a light that had gone out for me as a mom and it had certainly gone out for Andrew. This teacher didn't know everything that was going on in Andrew's life or in our life as a family, but Mr. Pickett knew Andrew was struggling. He knew there was hurt and pain beneath the behavior. And that question, how may I serve you, turned into these three questions. What do you need? How can I help? And what can we do to make this better? I use this all the time in my own family and with students. But what I want to emphasize this afternoon is that validation and the power of questions are some of the most powerful co-regulatory strategies we can use but they only are positive and work well when the adult brain and body state is calm and regulated. You can ask those questions, but you never should expect an answer because you're asking them from a place of reaching empathic resonance with that child. You want to know and understand how they're experiencing and sensing their worlds. So um, I'm going to end with that and didn't get through everything, but this is our most recent book, Eyes Are Never Quiet. It has a resource section. Um, many districts are using this as a district read. Um, and then this is the new book, Connections Over Compliance, Rewiring Our Perceptions of Discipline. I want to end today by sharing with you that Yes, we have kids that um, may reach that point of no return and we are left with now what to do. That would probably be a whole nother part two of this. But I do wanna emphasize that when we are intentional and when we begin to focus on ourselves and we begin to change up how we see discipline and how the science informs us and we shift to preventative, you'll begin to see those negative behaviors lessen because of the safety and the connection that you have um, implemented. So please, please connect with me. Um, Revelations in Education is our website and um, I'm on social media all the time. Guy and Beth know that. My Butler email, you're welcome to email me at Butler, it's right there. And um, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. I can't thank you enough, Beth and Guy. Thank you so much for having me. And if we have time for questions, I'd be very happy. I hope I didn't go too long. Oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely appreciate it. This has been fantastic. And and I just will say that 
Absolutely. Whenever you're ready, we will take you up on uh, part two because this this has been amazing. We've been getting a lot of uh, a lot of comments as we've been going. And I just want to let folks know that if you have questions, feel free to type those into the chat and we'll try to get some some of the questions. But thank you so much. You know, I I really uh, enjoy being a part of this uh, because it's a a fantastic way to learn so much. And uh, I'm going to go and take your presentation here off the screen. Okay. And uh, just have the three of us here. And uh, but again, thank you. And let's let's look at a couple comments before we get to some questions, because there were a couple comments that caught my caught my eye here as they were coming through. Uh, this one uh, from Op- Op- Optimal Rhythm said, I love the intentional nature of this presentation. We as adults must take responsibility uh, for making environments safe for our students if we want them to learn and maintain regulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think very uh, tightly tied to, to what you're saying here. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I w- and I want to just make a comment. Uh, Lori, I heard you tell this story about your son before, um, just, I guess, last week. Um, I, I so appreciate you sharing it. I had the same experience with one of my sons, and I, I need the tissues. I, I, for Because I can identify, but be, also because the power of that teacher that mm-hmm. teacher, uh, it's just, we, we don't know what power, what one thing we do, how that can impact a whole family, one yeah. person or a whole family. It's just, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're exactly right. And and um, as I shared before, Andrew worked hard for Mr. Pickett. He got an A in there and got Ds and Fs and everything else, um, but worked worked very hard. That's great. Thank you. So a couple more comments and then we'll get to some questions. Uh, this one from Mandy. Uh, this is fantastic. And you're spot on when you say that the greatest roadblock will be your fellow staff members. Yeah. I've heard so many times that, that the fact that I don't have severe consequences means that I'm letting kids get away with things. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any recommendations on that? I mean, in terms of really trying yeah. to get your colleagues to um, change. Yeah because Andy's exactly right. And I hear that in every school I go in and it's, it's just part of this learning curve. Um, and we grow up thinking that unless this consequence is painful or uncomfortable, there will not be a sustainable behavioral change. And that is not true. Um, our kids who are coming in with these chronic behavioral issues have experiences that have been so painful and uncomfortable that most of us can't even imagine. And so what we're doing unintentionally is we are re-traumatizing and actually recreating the environments that have produced that type of pain. But we don't see that traditionally because many of us, and this is true, even for new teachers that came from pretty rough and tough environments, they would say to me, come on, Lori, you know, I, I grew up, my A score was an eight. They, you know, look at me, I got through this. There's a term for this. It's called survivor's pride, you know, and what we learn is that we all have a personal relationship with stress and that stress is not something out here. It is, um, you know, how we have internalized that. that. And um, and we didn't know back then. You know, I think I want to say a lot of those teachers that are 25 and 30 years old that shared that with me. I wonder and I'm curious about their mental, emotional and physiological health 10 years from now or 20 years from now, because sometimes we repress it, we push it down and we keep going, Mm. but it catches up with us. 
Absolutely, absolutely. But by the way, I have to say, uh, I loved Reagan's illustrations. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah, would love to share that slide sometime. They're absolutely great. Um, so let's get a couple other uh, comments here. Um, While you're getting the comments, I, sure. I need you to, to define bell work because that, that's been a new term to me. Yeah, so people, it's morning work or do now or bell ringer. So a lot of people call it different things. We call it, it's the first seven minutes of the day when you, the teacher's organizing, kids are turning in their homework, they're unpacking, they're eating breakfast. Um, it's kind of that time before even the, the morning meeting starts. And like in classes, it lasts about seven to nine minutes. We've got an incredible, that's a miraculous time for us to use discipline preventatively and socially and safely right then and there. Okay, thanks. Uh, so th this one uh, from Lynn here, um, th this is very um, meaningful to me and kind of related to the issue that we run into with restraint seclusion. Lynn says, uh, I often hear, this child is disrupting, scaring my entire class. I need to get them out for the sake of everyone else. And I hear um, others will start doing what they do. Um, so how would you address that? So I actually called this scenario up in my mind, sitting on my screened in porch before. And when you've reached that point, there's not a lot of options left. That's what I wanna say. If a child has reached that point, where they are amped up that much, then, and, and you are concerned about their safety and the other children's safety, then you, then there has, we've got to take action, you know, at that point. And I don't want to speak specifically, there's been a trend of moving the class out of the room um, that I've been hearing about. But um, I, I want to encourage, I can't remember her name again, but I, um, yeah, I want to encourage, is it Lynn? Yes. Um, so I want to encourage, this is a process. Um, this is not going to happen overnight. And so when I've had a situation, because I've had many being a teacher of children with the classification of behavior disordered or emotionally disturbed, we had disruptions all the time um, and things thrown. And, and um, but, but I, I would take that opportunity and to look at this as what happened before? What are the patterns? What are the triggers? In, in a time when that child is neutral, you got to have that conversation and give them an option of three practices they can go to when they start to to get rough. And then then I hear, well, Lori, everybody's going to want to do that. If this kid gets to go get a drink of water and go shoot baskets and, you know, go, then everybody's going to want to do that. And that and that's not true, you know, and, and so. It is, we've really, it's not fair. It's not the old saying that, you know, fair is not equal or that's not it. It's everybody really gets what they need. And so these conversations have to happen preventatively. Um, and it's, and we are constantly, if I were Lynn, I, I would be thinking to myself, okay, here's the work I need to do. I need to really think now about what just happened. What are the patterns? Is this happening after lunch? Is this happening at recess? Is this happening on Tuesday mornings? Is this happening Thursday afternoons? We begin to see, and there's a there's a template I use called a secret, and I didn't get to it today. Um, and so we sit down as a grade level and we talk about what are this what are the damaging you know what are the sensory issues where where did this happen where's the culture like is it in the hallway bathroom classroom. You can begin to pre-op this. 
that's that's what we have to do it's a it's more work on the front end mm-hmm. but then you literally have <laughs> I mean, you just you just have this incredible relationship and you have this child who is just learning to love him or herself again and who's who um, is just growing and maturing in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know, you mentioned, of course, earlier in the, the presentation about the importance of staff checking in uh, with their own brain state, which I think is really important. But another thing that, that we've seen and heard um, happen repeatedly are are educators that are very well intentioned that are working with children that are becoming escalated and dysregulated. And as the, the child becomes dysregulated, the teacher puts more demands. And you, I thought the, the conversation talking about kind of the ears shutting down uh, yeah. is really important because what happens at that moment is you've got a child that's having a hard time meeting whatever's been put in front of them. And we're piling more and more on top, which then leads to that fight or flight kind of, you know, uh, escalation. Yeah. Yeah. And those are the small adjustments, you know, just knowing that, I mean, just the small things that we can, you know, we can shift um, and, you know, and and moving away, giving time and space and modeling the behaviors that we want to see too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to bring up another one here from Aaron. And I know you mentioned this um, kind of as, in, as you were getting to your last slides, but just asking about other resources that parents can read as we uh, await for your newest book. And of course, you mentioned your, your website. Um, but what, what else would you recommend, um, for parents that want to there for parents? Um, I love Peter Levine's work. Um, and there's a book that he's written called trauma through a child's eyes. And I love that because it really is practical. It really is. I think it's written more for parents and educators, but it's for both, but he really addresses, you know, what we can do as far as regulation. Um, so I love his book. I love that for parents. Um, Lucy Jane Miller's research it for sensory issues is um, is really good too. And we adopted her kind of platform for a secret for educators. And that's where that that application of that research came from. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Uh, I've got something else here from Andy um, talking about the applied educational neuroscience certificate that Butler offers and uh, actually talking about having uh, having gone to Butler, uh, but not there now and uh, was asking about an online certificate, if you know of any options like that. And certainly as we think about the opportunity to, to share this um, this knowledge, um, you know, an, an online program might be really helpful. So are you aware of any anything oh, in the... Uh, Oh, yes, Andy. Thank you. So, um, yeah, so I teach it all um, and we developed this. Um, we are in we're starting cohort five. It is a nine hour certification for um, it can apply to any degree or it can be non degree. Um, but it really is preparing educators, parents. We've had pediatricians take it. We've had mental mm-hmm. health practitioners take it. Mm-hmm. We've had um, counselors, social workers, physical therapists, occupational therapists. Um, we business community leaders, we have taken it. Um, so this nine hours is you move as a cohort for 10 months. Um, very doable. Um, it's so easy to do as you have a full time job. And but it really prepares you and differentiates your work in being trauma responsive and being um, understanding brain development through the educator lens. That's great. So, Lori, I, I know that um, when I looked into it, there's a piece that where you have to go to the campus. A lot of stuff, some of it's done 
so so it's mostly online so this coming year we're all online and thank you for saying that so we start in a couple of weeks um we we typically have a summer intensive that's one week and even if you live like in virginia or out of town i'd love to meet you so if people can come um to campus to be with us i think it's really good to do face to face for a week and it's you know the, you can stay in our dorms you can stay in fun airbnbs but we're all together for a week this year we're not because of covid so it's completely online and then so you have an option to take it if you can't get to campus like if you want to take it next year you can take it distance learning online mm-hmm. um so synchronous asynchronous all the way through that's fantastic Fabulous. yeah uh, so I'm going to bring up another one here, and this is more of a comment, but uh, Jessica says, thank you for the phenomenal presentation. It was professional, succinct, clear, and powerful. I work with immensely traumatized children and teachers in South Africa who will benefit greatly from your work. And it's it's great, Jessica, to see, uh, you know, you reach, you you watching this uh, from South Africa, and, and certainly uh, the things that you're talking about apply, uh, you know, to children across the globe. And it's great to, to see thank the you. international you. audience. Uh, so we might have time for another question or two. I'm just going to look through here real quick. Uh, Beth, I don't know if you have any uh, well, questions. Well, there were questions, looking. and we talked about this um, a little ahead of time. There, people want copies of your um, some of the, the things you had on slides or copies of the whole slides. And I know um, that because you revise them continually. So could you speak to that, um, how so they yeah, so I would um, I would encourage anybody that would like some resources um, to email me, um, you know, my Butler email to reach out or through social media, but probably you could message me, but just email me um, just in an hour, you know, Facebook Live. It's I, I don't I'll be happy to share the resources that I can. But, um, you know, we just want to make sure that, um, you know, there's a clear understanding of how to use those. Um, it's not that I don't want to share them at all. It's just that I want to make sure that, you know, everyone feels very comfortable in how to implement those, um, you know, the timing and, and how those are, how those are done. So, yeah, but please feel free to reach out to me. Okay. That's great. Um, I was going to just, from my notes here, I was taking notes, uh, as you were talking, cause there was so much great stuff. One of the things that I wrote down was about the amygdala areas and, and, and I liked a number of things about that. One, I liked that you know, you're, you're bringing the science into it because I'm a little bit of a science nerd myself. So I'd love to see that. Um, but, you know, when when I think about this from the perspective of, of someone that's very concerned about the use of restraint seclusion, unfortunately, um, rooms that have been used for children with with such names as calm down room and blue room right. and cool down room and all, all of these things have, have sometimes been very negative things. I, I'm, I'm interested. Um, do you have anything that goes into more depth about the amygdala rooms? Uh, is there an article or any other information? I'd, I'd love. I mean, I, I, you know, we, we've always been very supportive of the idea of kind of sensory rooms and other options. Um, but right. I, I'm interested in learning more about that as well. So I'm really glad that you brought that up, Guy, because here's the here's the challenge. You mentioned this already. We have seen kids liter. I'm, I'm sorry. We have seen amygdala areas become punitive, right, like right, that, right, right, because they're only they're being used to. We say go in there and calm and regulate, right. but kids pick up that they're punitive, mm-hmm. and so this is really important because. Um, we use them for celebratory purposes too. So I want teachers to think celebratory 
and regulatory. Mm -hmm. And you go in there yourself and model when things have gone well. So we don't, you know, we use those for both purposes. And I've got two articles um, that will be in the new book, but I can send them to you. Um, my graduate assistant and co-instructor Courtney, she wrote these. Um, God love her. She knew that we needed a little bit more of a written explanation. And then I have a video explaining how to use them on my YouTube channel. Yeah, I'd, I'd, love, I'd love if you can share that and we can share it with the, uh, the yeah. audience for the Alliance as well. That's great. Yeah, and I absolutely... That too. Yeah, absolutely agree with you. You know, I have had experience with my son uh, in terms of a, a teacher that did a really good job of having a space that kids could use as a kind of a sensory room. But I've had the other experience, unfortunately, as well, where when he was being restrained and secluded, the room was called the the um, you know the calm down room, and I was told that you know oh well well some kids go there by choice, and I could never imagine any child witnessing a child being drugged to a room and forced in there against their will and then deciding they would want to go in there as well. Um, yeah. So I think you're right. I mean, you, you can't, you can't mix purpose. Um, you've got to be well, really consistent. Yeah. And we, and we, you know, the important thing is to talk about the, the, the room before you start using it. Right. I mean, we talk about it, you know, we say, what are the different ways we can really celebrate having this in our room? And here's something else that's kind of cool where you have morning work and whole group instruction, you create your whole classroom as a brain lab. So the prefrontal cortex is for morning meeting. Then you've got an area for the hippocampus, which is where you study and have quiet time. We've got the amygdala area, you know, and so you can really, um, you know, create it with a sense of purpose. And the kids love that. I mean, we do it. Yeah, they have a neuroscience fair in April um, the last couple of years where they've shared, um, you know, different parts of the brain and um, so yeah, it's just that's yeah. for me. That's discipline. Yeah, and such such a great way to get the neuroscience in the schools from from not mm -hmm. only the kids' perspective but also from the the teachers' perspectives. I mean, that's certainly one one of the the missions that I think we'd like to see is, is more schools embracing the neuroscience and really yeah. able to support kids appropriately. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're, we're just about uh, wrapping up here. Um, Beth, I don't know if you saw any other questions or comments. Uh, yeah, that, there were a couple missed. things okay. um, that we can we can put on the website or on the Facebook. Um, the people didn't catch your email. Um, and also people wanted to be reminded of your uh, website name. The okay, so yeah, so revelationsineducation.com. So revelations. Um, with an S, all one word, revelationsineducation.com. And then um, and then you'll put my email. It's well, do you want to just, yeah, we'll do that. But you want to just give it out real quick? Sure. It's L, so you can see my name spelled. So it's L-D-E-S-A-U-T-E at butler.edu. So take off the L and the S of Desitel. So L-D-E-S. <laughs> A-U-T-E at butler.edu. Great. Um, Beth, did you have any any final questions? I, I always like to give you one last question because I always know you have something. Uh, I, I have a couple. Comments. Well, yeah, I mean, a couple. I, I, mean, I know. I, I, I just one. <laughs> one thing is um, don't don't spell. Oh, I have more than one. More than two. Revelations, not revolutions. Um, <laughs> that's what I did the first couple of times. Uh, but on the website, one of the things that I just love that you've done um, is, is the way you re 
uh, framed IEP goals or supports, not goals, the supports. So I would encourage you all to, to look for that on the website because it takes it away from the goals that we always see that aren't very meaningful, not the goals, the accommodations. Yeah. To putting in the kinds of accommodations that are really useful. Yeah, I, I would encourage, thank you, Beth, for that, because, um, you know, I could become an old, old lady with gray hair by the time an IEP gets written and implemented. So <laughs> our kids are going to be coming back with um, significant behavioral challenges. They're going to escalate. And many of our students are going to need accommodations for regulation and connection. So there's a form on the website. Um, for grade levels in schools to really come together to accommodate that student while you're waiting on an IEP or 504. Yeah, it's, it's fabulous. Um, and, and the other thing I was going to say is I'm so appreciative of, of everything you have said today and everything every time I've ever heard you. What I think one of our challenges um, at, our, at our organization is we, of course, want this everywhere, like you do, in all the schools and instead of the, the uh, point systems and the punitive systems and the push out and the um, all these uh, um, exclusionary dis discipline things. What I think you have done is you've given us, um, you have helped all of us who've been listening, frame it, a new frame to say it, but also with enough that's similar so that that gives a way to, to take the things that are good about other programs such as you need routines. These things are, uh, this is what routines do. And you, you've given us ways to be able to frame it to help make the case. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Beth. Yeah, I just, um, there's so much to share. Yeah, well, this, is, this has been great. And and we would absolutely love to, to have you, you back again. Um, uh, yeah, definitely a lot of a lot of information, but I think this has been really, really valuable. So again, just just want to thank you. I've got a, a couple announcements here to share with our audience. But uh, Lori, thank you so much for for being part of this today, and uh, we look forward to continuing to follow your work, and we'll share uh, with with the audience here as well. Uh, thank you so much, Guy. Thank you so much for hosting and having me, and Beth. Thank you again for all of your support, and and thanks to everybody who tuned in and took this time out today. Can I leave the studio now? I, I'm, I will <laughs> help you leave the studio. <laughs> All right, there we go. All right, so I have a, a just a quick announcement here. Um, again, I hope everybody enjoyed this uh, today. Uh, I know I always enjoy these immensely and uh, find that they're really, really helpful. Uh, but I do want to share with you that we've got more great programming coming. Uh, our next Facebook Live event will actually be in two weeks. We're going to be moving now to every other week. Um, we've been doing weekly just kind of while school was still in because we really wanted to try to get as much information to to parents and teachers and others during the this time that would be helpful. Uh, so we've got Dr. Gregory Siskan uh, coming and seeing us in two weeks. He's going to be talking about attachment, security, and the neurobiology of crisis, trauma, and resilience. So you're going to find a lot of themes here between uh, the different speakers that we've had. And I think that will continue as we get into uh, next week as well. So uh, be sure to tune in and uh, we will see you uh, next week. And uh, thank you very much for being part of the program today.